Hello. Uh, welcome to the New Federalist Podcast. I hope everyone is having a great start to their week. It is nice and gray and gloomy here in Portland. <laughs> uh, I wanted to start with a quick update. I changed my host provider to be Anchor FM because they give you unlimited content uploads without paying for the extra. So I found a nice way around that problem of only being able to upload a couple hours of content a month. But today I wanted to talk about the realities of what our economy looks like, who has what, who's at a disadvantage, and what the distribution of opportunity is in general. If you'll remember from the last couple episodes, we talked about the neoliberal mindset that has created our current crises. So building upon that, we're going to analyze in depth uh, what those numbers of wealth disparities that I provided actually mean. Um, if you remember at the beginning of episode two, I gave some statistics about the distribution of assets and uh, physical wealth that we see where the working class is essentially competing for about 30% of the wealth in the country because the rest of it is locked away. With that being said, let's dive into this discussion examining the real life impacts that these neoliberal mindsets have had in shaping uh, the distribution of wealth. Since the turn of the century, costs of living have increased greatly while the wages that people have paid have shown zero growth in many cases, actually having a downward trend much of the time. Specifically from 2003 to 2015, the average income dropped 10% from the 2001 levels. And then we finally caught back up with what we were making in 2001 in 2019. <laughs> so just think about that for a second in terms of we think we've grown. The upper class has exponentially grown the working class has all but halted and seen a reduction until two years ago, where we have slowly, slowly started to come back and then had that reverse during COVID once again. 24 million low-income wage workers pay half or more of their income just for housing. And the average cost of a single-bedroom living space is just under $1,100 per month countrywide. This is average across the country. So that number is more than a 14% increase since 2000. And in that same, same time span, wages grew negatively. And uh, like I said, a slight bump up coming to 2019 into 2020 and then the pandemic hit. So rent is clearly something that a significant amount of Americans struggle to keep up with every month. And then you add on groceries, medical bills, pets, kids, any unforeseen expenses, and how do you expect the average person to afford life? I want to include these statistics directly in the conversation to combat the notion that government subsidies for impoverished communities are going to people who just sit on their ass while the government pays their rent. That is far from the case, especially in cases like rental assistance programs. These kind of aid programs are tied in with other requirements, such as having unemployment or stipulations that you need to show proof of at least trying to find work or previously being employed. And then on top of this, our social welfare allocation is extremely small compared to the rest of our spending. We only spend some $44 billion per year on rental assistance programs. 
which is less than half of the federal funding for law enforcement. So in our country, we would rather spend money on the police that brutalize and arrest the people who have been evicted and are now trying to find shelter on the street. I will get to this in uh, several episodes. It's, it is a little ways down when we will talk about the prison system and police, but it is exorbitantly more expensive to do this, to hire law enforcement to be heavily weaponized and essentially patrol our streets to beat people to close to death. And it is more attractive yet more expensive to the American government to do this. Whereas if we were to spend more time on restorative justice, we would see so many of the problems alleviated before they even came to a point where people would be in crisis. So that $44 billion a year in rental assistance is out of roughly $352 billion that we spend total in safety net programs every year. That is 8% of the Fed's total $4.4 trillion budget. We spend over twice our social welfare spending on the military industrial complex, which we spend over $710 billion on annually. To further give some context on how little the American government cares about helping its citizens, the Fed gave $5 billion of taxpayer money to Elon Musk last year. So <laughs> the Fed basically just gave Elon a tenth of what would go to their rental assistance programs normally. And when that happened, we saw... Elon and Bezos start to get in a little cat fight and Bezos had a temper tantrum when he realized the government uh, only gave him $10 billion to build his phallic rockets. Think about how ironic it is that we have the two richest men on earth fighting for government funding when both of them tout their tax evasion. Whenever a politician proposes to raise the budget, that we do allocate to social aid programs, they are met with fierce resistance from all sides about people needing to work harder so that they don't rely on the government for help and that the market will solve all of our problems for them. And if you'll remember from our last episode, this is a pure extension of the personal responsibility neoliberal rhetoric that took over during Reagan's presidency. So when we hear people make this argument about personal responsibility being needed and not wanting to just give out handouts to people to live more comfortably or be able to afford essentials. The main argument falls apart when you look at, didn't the politicians just hand $15 billion to Bezos and Musk? How are we going to justify using governmental funds and taxpayer money to fund a private sector endeavor, let alone the two richest men on earth who evade taxes and should have all the funding necessary for their project. And aren't they claiming that the same type of handouts to ordinary people receiving funds for their small business or their rental assistance, whatever it may be to help them stay on their feet and survive? Why do we see that as a handout where we see the rich people as deserving? And this all ties back into 
the dichotomy of class and privilege that we see in this country, where if somebody is wealthy, they deserve to have it no matter what kind of person they are. The rationality is flawed to keep this status quo of veiled American exceptionalism behind capital enslavement. It's like George Bush telling a woman who worked three jobs to support herself that she was uniquely American. I don't know if any of you remember that. If the government funds individual projects, it should be for our benefit in a collective endeavor, not for the richest donor who has such an out-of-touch view uh, that upon returning to Earth from his government-funded space trip, he said thank you to every Amazon customer and employee for funding it. You guys paid for all this. Yeah, unironically, their hours of micromanaged labor and tax dollars that you grifted from the government that went out of their pockets did pay for it, Jeff. It really did. So I want to pause for a second and pose a question to the listener. Do you think that Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk doing the job that NASA had done more efficiently and safely for decades before our deregulation bonanza, when NASA had all their funding cut, do you think that they are doing a better or more innovative or more economically productive method of this? The answer is no. They are capitalizing on the structure of essential like Russian oligarchy that America has adopted, or I guess we had it first and Russia just took it the authoritarian route, but the wealthy and well-connected will be able to receive any amount of funding they want for any project, no matter how wasteful it is or how personal it is. The reason that Musk and Bezos are doing this is because they want to be the first people who get in on that sweet, sweet asteroid mining business and become the first trillionaires. Additionally, government and public sector backed organizations like NASA often are better drivers of innovation anyways, which we will get to a little later when we get into the complexities of what a social capitalist type of economy would look like. There was a recent promotional campaign that was run by financial institutions. I think BlackRock put it out. That is extremely dystopian and terrifying. But keep in mind, this is the reality that banks in the 1% want. The tagline was, quote, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Let that sink in for a second. For the first few episodes, I've been detailing the extent of capital servitude uh, that the ruling class maintains within our status quo. But I have not done a lot of in-depth analysis for the second half of our hierarchy that maintains our status quo, which is white supremacism. If you will remember, savage capitalism, white supremacism, hand-in-hand to maintain the American status quo. Throughout history, elites have systematically consolidated power within housing, business, and educational markets to keep out undesirables, quote, while hoarding the best services to themselves. Business associations have become governing bodies within our towns for this specific purpose. They can direct police activity, dictate taxes, decide market prices for all commodities, and shut specific populations out of whatever neighborhood they want with a snap of their fingers. And I'm going to use Portland as a perfect example of this, firstly, because I have the most knowledge of this city because I live here, but also because it's emblematic of how business associations run cities throughout the rest of the country. Wealthy interests are able to control exactly where the police are deployed, 
what the target of enforcement is and what charges should be brought up. This is very important to remember. In Portland, the assistant district attorney has their entire salary paid by the Portland Business Alliance, which is the PBA. The PBA has fully directed the police bureau's activity, sending them to sweep homeless camps in wealthy neighborhoods while their patrons lavish on their balconies overlooking. And they dictate the overall use of force by telling cops to viciously defend specific property. Generally, when there is violence or shooting, as have happened recently, it takes upwards of 30 minutes for units to respond. But as soon as demonstrations got too close to Ted Wheeler's house last summer, cops responded within seconds. Another example I can give of this, which we'll discuss a little later as well, is there was a recent shooting in Portland where a man had to sprint through his front yard and sweep his four-year or five-year-old son out of the line of gunshots. Uh, and when the neighbors and him called the police, it took over 30 minutes for them to respond. At the same time, I have also mentioned this Nabisco strike that's going on in Portland. Workers there occupied a space of the train tracks that the company uses to unload all of their new baking supplies. Mondales, I think that's the name of their parent company, dug up this really questionable statue that said they had a claim to the piece of land protesters were occupying on the train tracks. Uh, they notified police within 10 minutes, police showed up to break the strike. And this was within the same week of events as well that <laughs> the two stories I'm comparing. And another example of this would be incidents wherein PPB and other organ departments, specifically in Salem and other Southern areas, uh, have been recorded telling their colleagues to ignore the right-wing protesters and aggressively pursue leftists. Whenever Proud Boys roll into Portland and engage in shootouts during the last couple of years, PPB has taken this don't ask, don't tell policy where they avoid certain protests and their counter demonstrations altogether because according to them, anyone being assaulted by the far right deserves it. PBA, the Business Association, has been under investigation this year for illegal lobbying, failing to disclose their payments, and contact with elected officials. There have been at least 25 violations this year alone with an undisclosed amount of money going directly into Ted Wheeler's office. He's the mayor. We can get a sense of what activity the Business Association wants the mayor to engage in since he is officially in charge of directing the police bureau. So... All we need to do is look at police department and legislative activity around the area, and we can know exactly the desires of the business bureau or the business association. With power beyond that of elected officials due to money and connections, unelected businessmen who represent fractions of a percent of our country are dictating the policy of major institutions and influencing the lives of millions beyond them. They maintain a hierarchy specifically conducive to upper-class interests and property value that leave the working class stranded further. For example, business associations were crucial to ending the rent protections during the pandemic, and subsequently, rent increased up to 65% more in some areas, specifically Los Angeles and other places in California had those skyrocketing rates then after they increase rent, they directed law enforcement to brutally sweep out any homeless encampments where evicted people may have found shelter. Our democracy is so, so thoroughly poisoned that 
random unelected people with no qualifications beyond taking the advantage of others to hoard money are essentially directing the country. And we see this across virtually every sector that has some major money behind it. And the policies that these business associations put in place leave many people being vulnerable to things like natural disasters. In Hurricane Katrina, people got stuck in the disaster because they didn't have a car, they couldn't afford to leave, or they had elderly parents take care to take care of as their rent became too high. So housing discrimination and the full control over what opportunities people have is the goal of business associations within our new feudalism. And they've been extremely successful at it, but it has absolutely crippled the opportunity for millions of Americans, especially in the working class. When looking at the demographic statistics of wealth and property ownership, the picture of white supremacist control over capital becomes even more lucid. 45% of African-Americans own their homes compared to 73.8% of the white population. And in terms of total population metrics, that is even more of a glaring discrepancy. Surveys have shown people think that for every $100 white families possess, a black family has $90, if they even acknowledge a race gap to begin with. This was the average discrepancy that people believed existed was a $10 difference, theoretically. In actuality, (laughs) African-American families hold $13 for every $100 that their white counterparts have. The median net worth of white families in America is 188200 while the median of African-Americans is 24000 And this is just cash assets without taking into account the vastly disproportionate ownership of commodities. White folks generally live in much nicer areas compared to Black families, creating massive disparities in education and resource access. Think about food deserts or how unlikely it is for somebody in an impoverished area to even have a chance for higher education. There has been a particularly bad recent issue of access to quality nutrition for minority communities, creating food deserts that see grocery stores and higher-end restaurants distinctly separate from people of color and poor folks. And this is for poor white people as well. Effectively, there are only fast food or corner stores as the only access points that they have for a meal. And on top of this, these communities are held in a market that restricts access to higher paying jobs, which would allow them to shop differently. So they're essentially stuck. Housing and broader economic denial also affects poor and people of color in their communities so heavily because racial covenants that banned certain populations from purchasing home for decades are still in law. This particular analysis may shock some people. It certainly was eye-opening to me as I was researching, but during the New Deal, FDR created the Homeowners Loan Corporation, the HOLC. This was a government-backed corporation, and it would ensure purchases on your home loan through bonds and The hope was that banks would refinance for lower down payments and give better interest rates. Many banks did adopt better rates under this system with the security of the government insurer basically guaranteeing them money. And 
they extended the period of time for people to pay their mortgages off, which is crucial because this is essentially where we get the structure of the modern home loan from, this HOLC New Deal program. However, this program came at the height of segregation in Jim Crow. And the HOLC had racial discrimination written into its code. The HOLC divided cities into neighborhoods based on credit ratings, marking them green, yellow, or red to determine which were, quote, responsible enough to participate in the program. And so this is where we come full circle with the idea of personal responsibility rhetoric being a very obvious veiled proxy issue for white supremacism. Personal responsibility rhetoric has devolved into practices such as redlining. And that is where the term came from, is this practice within the HOLC. The organization quickly began marking off neighborhoods in red if they had even one Black resident, denying any opportunities for federal help. Federal agencies also claimed that minority populations, specifically African Americans, were, quote, too dangerous to assist. The specific language that the HOLC used was to deny loans for any Black racial covenants, enshrining segregation in New Deal legislation. This was also the case after the GI Bill was passed, which provided automatic approval for loans with as little as $0 down, but many financial institutions still refused to approve Black GIs. African-American servicemen returning from World War II thus couldn't get loans coming home, and they became stranded without an education or ability to own property. Of over 3,200 GI loans given, only two went to African-Americans. Two. Unsurprisingly, as a result of this racism, homeowners associations and neighborhoods began blatantly writing their own segregation codes into charters, uh, specifically banning African-Americans so that the government would give them loans. And that is a perfect summary of the white supremacy that has existed in America since our beginning. In one instance, an emerging uh, white Detroit neighborhood was trying to apply to the homeowner loan corporation, but it was too close for the agency's liking to an African-American community. That specific neighborhood solution was to build a six foot tall fence around the edge of the neighborhood, which still stands today. And as soon as they did, the federal government gave them loans. Levittown is another famous example of redlining. It was a Long Island neighborhood whose charter said, and still says, that nobody outside the Caucasian race may access it. An older woman uh, recounted innocently trying to get a house in Levittown since she and her husband had the cash. And she recalls how they went to the realtor. And as soon as they showed up to tour the house, the realtor said, get your N-word ass out of town. The most tragic part about this is how casually this woman recalls the aggression how these are the types of stories that grandmothers are telling to their children. White families that bought homes in Levittown during its 1948 opening have seen an average of $200,000 in generational wealth gained from their investment. It has appreciated over $200,000. The HOLC insured $41 billion worth of total home loans during its life, and 98% of those went to white families. The value of those loans 
is now over $400 billion. Think about how much wealth that we would never even realize doesn't even have the opportunity to be had by anybody outside of the white middle class. And I am including poor white people in this too, because I feel that we don't realize how white supremacism hurts us all. Poor white families have all of this ingrained rage that the Republican Party and Trump has been able to tap into through their bullshit performative populism. And so instead of that anger being directed at the business associations, the governmental agencies, and the upper class that are holding them in that economic servitude through policies like this, they are told to take that anger out on black or brown communities because they are the quote other, they are the ones who are the danger. And that is where our identity politics has sprouted from and always will come down to. So at the time that the HLLC was handing out these loans, people were well aware of what the increase in value would be. And there were a lot of predatory behaviors that sprouted from this. One of these was called blockbusting. This slimy practice targeted specific neighborhoods known to have a future upside in their value due to location or some other condition. And then they would make it seem like Black families were moving in or there were already African-Americans who lived there. So they would hire African-American families to walk down the street, act like they lived there or act like they were interested in buying. This would subsequently scare off any potential white buyers and it would force existing owners to panic sell if they thought that Black families were going to move into the neighborhood and thus deny them HOLC loans and tank the value. So these financial entities would, would engage in a blockbusting practice. Then they would wait until the neighborhood clears out or significantly depreciated in value. They would swoop in and blanketly buy the whole community, essentially. They would do this at a huge discount. Then they would purge all African-American actors or people who may have even lived there to begin with. And they would advertise their new exclusively white community as the next new hot investment. And obviously that those investments appreciated greatly, but it was exclusionary of anybody but the white middle class. Community leaders have been trying to fight against this predation for decades. One of Martin Luther King's biggest focuses was on housing equality in Chicago which, side note, is still the most segregated city to this day. Sections 8 to 9 of the Civil Rights Act of 1968 were dedicated to fair housing, making discrimination illegal, and forcing affirmative action upon previous HOLC loan offerings. This was initially enforced, and as housing secretary, and Mitt Romney's dad was actually a phenomenal force in this fight, where he refused loans to neighborhoods if they didn't amend their charters and integrate. And then good old Tricky Dick Nixon refused to continue this policy and valiantly fought it as part of his Southern strategy, claiming that housing integration is not in the national interest. Quote, Nixon in general, which we will examine later, is a turning point where the Republican Party adopted racism and hatred, essentially, as not a part of its platform, but the central component. 
real estate agents still discriminate today, offering better deals or locations to white families. In a recent Newsday study, they found that Black homeowners received disparate treatment 49% of the time, additionally capturing some damning footage of real estate agents steering white families away from their communities. This is a quote from one of the agents that was caught on video. Quote, you have to say it without saying it, you know, the knowledge of the areas. And then she went on to say that the previous family she had shown only took one trip down to the 7-Eleven and decided not to live there. Out of 31 million plus loan applicants, Black applicants were denied conventional mortgages much more frequently, even when controlling based on income, neighborhood, and loan size. There are many instances of Black homeowners who have posed as white by having a relative or friend pose as the property owner. And... In some cases, the property valuations have more than doubled. In one case that the Newsday study examined, a black Indianapolis homeowner had her house valued twice at $125,000 and then $110,000. She knew that her home was worth more, but she didn't know how much. So she had her brother-in-law pose, he was white, pose as the, the actual homeowner. She has another assessment done through him And with the white homeowner as the face, her home was valued at $260,000. That is well over a double in the value. If we do nothing, it will take at least 200 more years for the wealth gap to even get to a level we might like to imagine it at. Even if you took out a mortgage to buy your home, you still have the option to sell it for a profit when it inevitably increases in value. However, in modern day America, now it is becoming everybody, but historically it has been very poor and minority people of color communities who are forced into renting. Even if they obtain a college degree and they're able to find a job they still don't outright own their property on top of having most likely tens of thousands of dollars in debt from student loans and whatever else they may have taken on, like a car, to try and survive. So now as more and more outside of the traditional very poor and minority communities are experiencing hardship, that rage is channeled by the GOP and other bad actors into going against each other and the the quote other in our society. So the point with this is the country has had a very specific population protected by the government. And the established ruling class was able to infinitely grow their wealth and their money, perpetuating it off the backs of oppressed groups. However, if someone can't afford to pay the cost to ride of being exploited through renting or wage slavery, We simply toss them aside because they aren't contributing to the hierarchy and making the upper class money. We don't believe in basic humanity. We only value capital. And as the richest nation on earth, we have one of the largest homeless populations on earth. How can that dichotomy exist? Strategic racism preserves existing hierarchies at a massive cost to the average person. The policies stemming from it make mobility for the average person fairly impossible due to the interests of the wealthy being met by our government for decades. 
their tax burden has steadily been reduced since the 50s while controversially raising the costs in taxes for the middle and lower classes. And on top of this, inflation has been allowed to go out of control. Today's income for the upper class is taxed almost 20% less than it was at a time most people consider the height of our power in America. And since then, the middle and lower classes have only lost economic freedom. As a generation raised and benefiting from white supremacy and savage capitalism turned around and denied all access to opportunities for the younger population while hoarding all of the wealth. Remember, only 30% of the existing wealth in America is available to over 200 million of its inhabitants. The truth is that the American dream is a total facade. The game is rigged against us like a giant carnival operated by billionaires and politicians as their carnies. In the same self-centered vein of thought that led indigenous people to be viewed like an annoying speed bump in the spread of white manifest destiny, we treat the humans in our modern labor force as simply the means to an end for individuals to make money, nothing more. How can we continue to shift into a functioning service economy when the people we rely on being personable, generating increased loyalty or happiness from customers and running the storefront of a corporate entity are viewed as an asset rather than a human with rights. We need to shift the way we think about our whole economic structure. Workers are increasingly younger, more educated, and more skilled, yet a majority of people who work these service and professional occupation jobs are not compensated nearly close to enough for the demands of everyday life. A study from 2014 found that the mean salary among service workers was around $35,000, while the average American CEO in charge of them made 331 times that amount following the recession. Pre-recession, it was even worse. And I ask you, what service does a Wall Street banker or a corporate CEO provide that is so much more important than their this means that everyday working people are getting over $30,000 a year less than what they should be in order to comfortably meet the standards of living for a family. Remember, for a family of four, each adult should have about $60,000 per year in income or about $17 an hour. So why do we leave the backbone of our economy to starve while the people who profit off of exploiting that backbone sit back and lavish on their yachts. In order to have a successful economic transition that actually allows everyone to pursue that American dream, there needs to be value placed on our workforce in order to create a trust balance between them and the heads of corporations. It's impossible to argue against the notion that workers who are satisfied with employment conditions while being provided enough in wages to actually live comfortably are going to do better work and be more loyal. The unfortunate reality, though, is companies would rather cycle through 100 workers rather than having a few core staff that they keep invested in the business by providing a living wage, good working conditions, and fair hours. We simply don't treat workers as though they are human. They are treated like disposable and unworthy of respect, that their opinions and feelings within the workplace don't matter. There has to be a shift where we begin viewing laborers as the valuable assets that they are and treat them accordingly. There would be no profit, there would be no growth without the human labor that we rely on every single hour of every day. Not enough people are recognizing these underlying issues yet, and that is what my work is aiming to do. To shed light on the disenfranchisement 
that we experience within white supremacy and savage capitalism while explaining how the upper class is trying to keep this status quo by dividing us. Our democracy as we know it is under attack. It doesn't matter if you are black, brown, white, gay, straight, religious. If you are outside of the ruling class, the odds are stacked against you in America. Policy that allows a few people to generate infinite wealth while ignoring declining living conditions among the rest of the population is not how a government should work, but it is the reality of America's system. Our selfishness is reflected in the fact that the baby boomer generation has managed to funnel so much wealth to themselves that just two generations later, their grandchildren are living paycheck to paycheck, saddled with debt, and face more barriers to property ownership than ever before. To further drive home that pain, we are forced to go begging at the same institutions the government has bailed out with our taxpayer money, pleading with banks to buy a car, to mortgage a home, or to even to receive an education so that we can get a job to pay off those things. Our current market has cut off access to education, healthcare, and any necessary resource that I believe are human rights to vulnerable communities, as privatization is forced by those with existing power. The lack of oversight has allowed predatory entities to price out historically oppressed people who have never had a chance to get started chasing the American dream and then gaslit them into thinking it's their own fault because they are not personally responsible. Then if the upper class manipulating markets for their own benefit get caught, they're let off scot-free as they promised that their boards will decide to make restitutions. Yet I have not seen any banks offering to pay back what they stole from the American people after 2008. The system ensures that the existing lower classes and any new person born outside of elite circles, tens of millions of ordinary Americans, are constantly forced to give all they have to the top in return for nothing. This increasing wealth gap driven by a lack of resources, stagnated wages, and crippled opportunity is producing crises such as a huge homeless population, which we've covered, uh, one of the most dire social issues in the country right now. The system has driven millions into desperation by severely undervaluing our labor, hoarding all of the profit we generate for them, then gaslighting us into thinking it is somehow our own fault for being poor. Welcome to America. It is time to recognize the egregiousness of our plutocratic reality and shed the light on new feudalism so that we can all understand how we are being disenfranchised and collectively attack these issues at the root of their source. Well, that is all I have for this episode. I hope you enjoyed and thank you so much for listening. I will be back in the next episode with a little discussion about the Federal Reserve, which I'm super excited about. I hope that listeners are looking forward to hearing that as well. And I will catch you all in the next one.